Welcome to the I Create Daily Podcast. I'm Leora Alderson. And I'm Devani Alderson. We're your co-hosts on this journey of creativity and productivity. I Create Daily is for artists in every genre of creating, from musicians to writers, crafters to inventors, bloggers to entrepreneurs. I Create Daily is a movement for creators serious about your art. If you're into creating anything, this podcast is definitely for you. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Hello and welcome to the I Create Daily podcast, a movement for creators serious about their work. I'm Leora. And I'm Devani. And our guest today is an award-winning American author, Padma Venkatraman, who has worked as chief scientist on oceanographic ships, spent time under the sea, directed a school, and lived in five countries. Padma has four published novels, three of which have won several national and international awards. They are A Time to Dance, Islands End, Climbing the Stairs, and her latest book, The Bridge Home, was just published in February 2019. Padma gives keynote addresses, speaks on TV and radio, serves on panels, conducts workshops, has been chief guest at international author festivals and visits schools all over the world. And we love the quote on her website, stories are ships on which we sail the oceans of imagination. So welcome, Padma. Yes, that's wonderful. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So your books, how did, tell us, like, how do you go from being a scientist and oceanographer to writing novels? How did that start? Well, I think I always um, loved writing. And I, I was afraid, though, when I was young, that I may not be able to make a profession of it, that I wouldn't be able to earn enough to support myself. And it was very important for me that I would be financially independent as an adult. Mm-hmm. And so I could, you know, although I never had any role models necessarily that were women of color, that were scientists that I saw, um, not even in books necessarily, I did know that that was something that, you know, was open to me and that I could do. So, and, and I loved mathematics as much as I loved words and language. So that was, um, that was what brought me to oceanography. I also had a very deep commitment to the environment always and to saving our world. Um, and so, you know, oceanography is obviously inextricably tied up with that. Mm. So you've spent a lot of time under the ocean as well, scuba diving, <laughs> snorkeling, and that sort of thing. I would imagine that's one of your loves. Um, not, I didn't spend a whole lot of time under the ocean. I have done uh, scuba diving and I have snorkeled, but that was, I wouldn't say a whole lot. Most of it, most of the work that I did actually was off uh, from the surface of ships. So, okay. ships. And what, what would that entail? What was some of the kind of work that you did? So one of the things that we do, I was looking at pollution in the oceans. So one of the things that I would do then would be to deploy instruments that would measure pollution mm. from the deck of a ship. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, assess that then. Do the studies and reading. Yeah. So, and so when did you, so you've always been interested in writing. You didn't think you could really make a living with that. So then you went the science track and you got that career. So then when did you return to the idea of writing? I returned, I wouldn't say I returned to it. It was more, it was always there as part of my life. 
But when I was in graduate school, actually studying to be an oceanographer, I started to to write again creatively as a way to keep in touch both with India because I had left India when I was 19. So I would then write articles about science for lay people. And that was a way to keep in touch with India and a way to keep in touch with this more creative way of writing. Mm -hmm. And so I did both. And then I started to write for young people about science initially in journals and so on. And then you know, when I was becoming an American citizen, going through that process, very few people who are, you know, or people who have been born in this country don't usually realize what the process entails. And it can be quite grueling. And one of the things that one has to swear to do for this country is to bear arms if the country decides to ask you to do that. And that was something that, you know, many people just swear to without any problem. Uh, assuming that they're never going to be called upon to do it. Yeah. And on the one hand, as a woman, I probably will not be asked to serve in that way, but still I didn't want to say those words unless I felt they were true. So I really started to ask myself, you know, this whole thing about nonviolence and violence, where do I stand on that issue? Do I think that a person ever, um, you know, has the right to be violent? Do I think that a nation should ever take up arms for any reason? And as I started to think about that, I went back in my own mind to a different time and place, India in the 1940s, where my mother was growing up as a young woman. And at that time, we had a, a tremendous contrast in the world because we had Mahatma Gandhi and then we had uh, Hitler as well, both alive at the same time. And then, you know, you have this horrendous war and you had the world's largest and first struggle for independence which was peaceful you know non-violent maybe peaceful is not quite the right word because uh, it wasn't peaceful necessarily but I think that that contrast made me really um, sort of wonder what she had thought at the time and also um, a grand uncle that I had had who had volunteered to be part of the allied forces at that time and many people don't know this but india had the world's largest all all, all volunteer allied force mm. and the people who served just fell through the cracks because no one wanted to recognize them as heroes and so i started to think about those unsigned heroes and i started to feel like i had never really known this man when i was young but he became a character in my mind for me. And then I thought of him and I thought of all these tales that my mother had told about how she'd been made to live in this very, very traditional household where she was forced to live downstairs where the kitchen was and was not even literally allowed to climb the stairs to get books out of the upstairs library. Wow. Because she was female and, you know, the library was in the men's realm. Wow. So when I thought about all of that, it just came together in a way as a novel that, among other things, explored my own issues and my own questions about violence and nonviolence and where I stood on that. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. That's quite an elaborate story and, and inspiring yeah. at the same time. So you're referring to um, the story basically that was became the premise for your book, Climbing the Stairs, yeah. right? And, and, and it's such a beautiful uh, intro. So 15-year-old um, so Vidya is the one that dreams of going to college, 
which was an unusual aspiration for a girl living in British-occupied India during World War II. Then tragedy mm. strikes, and Vijay and her brother are forced to move into a traditional household with their extended family where women are meant to be married, not educated. Breaking the rules, Vidya refines refuge in her grandfather's library. I love that. So does that, um, did your mother find a way to yeah. find an ally that helped her to access those forbidden books? Absolutely. So she did, you know, she is now a lawyer and wow. she's 86. <laughs> wow. A person who's 86 in this country who's been a lawyer is already somebody who has had to fight a mm -hmm. great deal to get where they are, let alone, you know, her growing up in India at that time, being 86 now and a lawyer, that's very unusual. Yes. Yeah. So you, when you came to this country when you were 19, um, how did you come? Did you come alone? Did you come with your family? I came alone. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, now I, I thought nothing of it at the time. <laughs> Break. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, now I, I really understand, you know, I see second generation Indian um, children or I see, you know, South Asians who've been brought up here like Devani. And I think, you know, sometimes you don't have an understanding of what it means to be an immigrant, yes. to leave your home and country, especially at that time, Devani, because we did not even have cell phones. And we didn't have, you know, we didn't have what we have now, which is, the, you know, this zoom and this ability to right. be able to zoom into your living room, you know, or Skype, none of those things. And so when I came here, I was completely alone in a new culture. I had no one around me that I could call for miles if, you know, anything happened. And I would call my mother once, I think a month it was, because you know, on a student salary, you don't have a lot of money. And she certainly didn't have a lot of money either. And you would call and there would be this operator who would allow you to speak for three minutes and it would be so tense. And then they would say another three minutes and you'd say no, because six minutes was, you know, right. expensive. Right. Mm, yeah. so no texts, no nothing. So it was, you know, quite a, a difficult experience. So was writing part of the way you uh, worked through the sort of, I guess, loneliness and isolation of being an immigrant? Is that part of just Absolutely. the sort of like creativity saving you uh, from all of that? Absolutely. I mean, I think art for, you know, several of the other speakers that you've had as well is, is a kind of refuge in itself, a kind of, you know, way that you connect with something that's, um, that's uh, beyond us, maybe. Yeah. And, and yeah. It helps you. It helps writing helps us discover ourselves right. and discover what we're thinking mm -hmm. about things, yeah. um, discover the hidden thoughts, even in those thoughts, you know, like the hidden feelings in those thoughts. So, so you were writing and processing. So you were working, so you went to university. Um, I guess you were on a student scholarship or um, program. Yeah, I was in graduate school at 19, by the way. I wasn't. Yeah. Wow. So you had already went to college early. Yes. Yeah. Wow, okay. Whoa. Precocious. So you were definitely educated. Right. And 90, almost, I might have been, you know, 20. And now that I think about it, but you know, I was, I left India when I was 19. And um, I, I lived abroad for a little while. And then I went to graduate school. So when I actually finally went to graduate school, um, I was probably around 20. But anyway, 1920-ish. Um, yeah. Okay, wow. So and, and what year was that that you came to this country then? You know, 
that's what I'm trying to think of. Um, I think it was about, the, um, must have been 89, 90, something like that, 1991. Okay. So that sounds right. And so when did you publish your first book? And tell us that journey. So I had been getting, as I said, I was just writing these things and, you know, everybody would, or if once in a while somebody said they would be published, or actually I have to say with the articles that I wrote, I never got rejections. Everybody was delighted to have somebody who was a scientist who was yeah. willing to write for yeah. people. Uh, and, you know, it was fun. I wrote about whatever I felt like, and it felt like <laughs> pocket change that would come in to augment yeah. my lousy salary as a graduate student. And I didn't really think about that, uh, about writing a book until much later. So I was at Johns Hopkins University. I did my postdoctoral research there. And then, you know, I had decided, and then I'd worked, um, you know, toward becoming a professor at a university. And I really started to think at that point, there were lots of changes in my life. And I wondered if I wanted to do that or maybe I wanted to go another way. And I think that's when I, I decided that I would step back from my potential, you know, career as a tenured professor in, in the sciences, which I, I didn't do that, and decided instead that I would cut back and, you know, do a little bit of teaching, perhaps not any more research, and uh, focus on writing as well. Because some people do do everything. But I felt like I wanted to be a mom and I wanted to write and I want and I couldn't see being a professor the way I wanted to be a professor, to be a teacher the way a, a good teacher gives so much to their students. A good researcher is constantly thinking about research. And I didn't think I could do all three. Yeah. Right. So, oh, you go ahead. Yeah, so so you left to so so you left about when was that that you decided to start? writing your are you a mom you're a mom by now and married no. no so i was married but not yet a mom so it was about i want to say 12 years ago 13 years 12 13 14 years ago maybe even 15 now but that i started writing um the novel and started working you know slowly moving away from science because i remembered still that you know it's not easy to make a living as a writer so i started to slowly move away from that and then uh, as I went on, moved further and further away. My first novel, Climbing the Stairs, was published about 11 years ago now. And my daughter was born 10 years ago. Yeah. Actually, I take that back. So she was born 11 years ago. The book must have been published. Wait, I'll tell you exactly when it was published. Um, about 10 years ago. Over 10 years ago. So, oh, 2008. Okay. All right. So yeah, you're right. Over 10. Yeah, it's just beautiful. And we'll mm, definitely link yes, yeah. to yeah to the covers. So 11 years ago, you published your first book. And um, how did that come about? So tell us the journey that you went through with your publisher. Um, and self-publishing even wasn't that, I don't even think it was a thing yeah, yet, uh, hardly at that point. So like tell blogging us. was just emerging as a major player and yeah. self-publishing definitely wasn't a huge thing. Yeah. So did you um, submit to a number of publishers and get any rejections before you got accepted? I submitted to several agents because I thought, you know, I had this resume. I had written other things that had been published 
And I thought I had a fantastic topic, you know, hardly anyone has ever written about or had at that point written about India and the Second World War. And I got about 40 rejections from agents. And you know, these were the days that we would query by writing actual letters. Right. You would yeah. mail a letter out and, you know, I didn't want to query like a 50 people all at once. So it was this gradual, slow 40 rejections that built up over years. And I never changed the novel. They just said flat out, no, I don't want to see it. So this was a query to say, here's what the novel's about. Would you be interested? Mm -hmm. And essentially I told them what I told you, which of course I wrote the novel. So I think it's phenomenally interesting, but no, 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 no. About wow. How did you keep resolve through that? Because not a lot of people want that much rejection and maybe even just one rejection is soul crushing. So what, what did you tell yourself through all of that? That's a fantastic question. And I think, you know, to, to be a creative person at some level, it's, it's very, very hard. And there are always different kinds of rejections. So it's not as though now because I'm a published author, I don't get, let's say, negative feedback or negative things happen. There are always disappointments. And it's very hard. I think you just have to sort of protect that, um, that creative energy somehow. And you protect it by continuing to write. To me, um, yoga and meditation are also very, very important. And I, you know, you know there are many people here who, um, who don't do quite as much yoga as I do and decide that they want to be yoga teachers. I learned from Yogacharya Krishnamacharya, who is one of the you know, most, not one of, to me, he is the most brilliant yoga teacher that has existed in our lifetimes. And he taught me ever since the age of eight until he died when he was about, I think he was 100, and, 100 or 101 when he actually passed away. And hale and hearty and healthy until that very last um, moment. And so he was a big influence in my life. And, and he was somebody who taught me to, as I said, yoga and meditation. And, and that's something that I've carried all my life as well. Mm. That certainly helps you to you know, keep focus and say, don't allow, we speak in India about karma yoga, which is that you do the best you can do when you do something but you try really hard not to be attached to the material reward, mm. to the material failure or loss. And it's easy to say, it's very, very hard to do. Right. Yeah. But I think, you know, somehow I managed to do, um, to keep going. And then finally the agent that took it sold it to Penguin, which I am quite sure at that time was the largest publishing house if it still isn't. Mm. So, and so that was about like, you had been working to get your book, uh, your manuscript accepted by, and then eventually by Penguin for what, a year, two years, how long? Probably two years or at least two years. Okay. So then uh, it must have been extraordinarily elating uh, yeah. to have an agent who was going to take it and then uh, who accepted it and then took it to Penguin and immediately it was accepted. So had you applied to Penguin on your own? No, I haven't. Okay, so you had gone only through the agents and they had turned you down. So um, I can only imagine the celebration in your household and in your heart when you got that letter and that notification. It was lovely. And actually, I think it was spring and I, um, my neighbor was uh, mowing the grass and, and he heard me scream. <laughs> 
stopped because he thought something had happened and he turned and I thought I have to be, you know, I was on the phone with my agent. I was so excited. And then of course I hung up and I ran over and I said, Stan, I my book. And of course I had told anybody about, that I was writing to because it was sort of felt like a secret. I didn't want to keep telling him, well, I have a book, I have a book. And then, you know, people keep saying, oh, so where, when is it coming out? And I had to keep saying, oh, I don't know if it's ever coming out. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, mm -hmm. it, it is hard to have those, you know, the well-meaning friends that are asking, right. but it's such a process. It's such a long process. Yeah. So then it was published and now you have your book and then it's a matter of, does it sell? Did it get dis distribution to bookstores and all of that? Right. Yeah. I mean, with Penguin, it gets distribution. Uh, yeah. But you know, so the beautiful thing about it, like we're looking at the cover now on Amazon and it's such a beautiful cover and so vibrant. And now when you have an array mm -hmm. of books, it really adds to your author page and profile, this um, artistic rendition of your creations. And even though it was published 11 years ago, it's just as good today because it's a fiction. It's a story, right? Mm -hmm. So you're still selling it today, and then the selling of the sell the sale of that helps with the sale of the next one and the next one, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, Islands End, my second book, though it it did very very well with the critics. It got you know starred reviews, which are very rare and very difficult to get. It got several of those, you know, four of those, which is quite outstanding. But it's now out of print, so. The, you know, when I'm speaking about sometimes it's not just all the way, it's not a straight uh, climb necessarily yeah. ever. And so I, I do want to say there are always setbacks. And um, it's not as though, so that book didn't do well for, for several reasons it, it, with sales, even though it did brilliantly in terms of, of critical reviews and awards as well. You know, it won uh, the South Asia Book Award and it won another international award. So in that way it was fine. So all I'm saying is it doesn't mean that if you have a setback, even after you start publishing, that you have to give up. And I think, again, you will always have things. It's, it's sort of an undulating river, but... Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like what you said before of like, there's different versions of rejection and it can come in different styles, whether it's just the initial getting published or the, um, how it's received did you have any pressure in writing your future books based on your first success with getting the first book published or did you just have so many rejections from the first like 40 people who told you no that you were just thrilled on the journey like how did that play out emotionally for you i think for a long time i was very thrilled on the journey and um you know it was wonderful it was difficult though when, when my second book baby, Islands End, you know, it's, it's about my time as an oceanographer. It's about this tribe that I, that I you know, that I didn't, I had, didn't do research on them. Obviously, I'm not an anthropo anthropologist. I don't look at, I don't, you know, study people or societies or any of that. I was there as an environmental scientist on the island. But what attracted me to this story was the the people of the islands the indigenous people on the andaman islands where i was when i was a scientist they have women as leaders of their tribes which is something phenomenal you mm. know um and amazing to me and so it's about a young woman who's chosen to be the leader of the tribe and what she goes through to do that and so in some ways it draws on my own story 
um, of being a leader often and places where I was the only person of color, I was the only female, and yet I was the, you know, the chief scientist or whatever else. And then I think it felt personal to me that rejection when it went out of print, it was very, very difficult to take. And um, again, I think it's, it's hard, I, but I kept going because I just thought, you know, yes, there is pressure. Yes, there is external pressure. And yes, sometimes it mounts and you feel like, oh my goodness, you know, this is, this is so depressing. This is so tough. What keeps me going though, is that I have a larger sense that writing and creating help to really communicate with other people, to connect with other people in a compassionate way. Mm. And I think that's so important to me. And to me, it's my, my exercise, if you will, of compassion when I write as much as I can. Because if you don't understand your characters from the inside out, if you don't have empathy toward your characters, then you can't imagine, uh, or you can't demand that your readers will have empathy either. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah, as a writer, you have to get into the head and emotions mm -hmm. uh, and hearts and dreams of your characters. So that's that's a, re a really great point. I've never, I don't think I've ever heard that expressed relative to how writing can help one express and develop compassion. And we're of course speaking about Island's End, the, your second, which I guess was your second novel and seeing that go out of print. But of course today you can easily bring it back to print yourself as a self, you know, self-published book. Is that something you've considered? I thought about it and, you know, who knows, although luckily for me recently, my editor said one day we're going to bring that out again. So, you know, I would rather do it that way because having a traditional publisher, I think there is so much they do for me. There's so much they look after, especially with being Penguin Random House that I don't think I want to get into the, the self-publishing because I think to do self-publishing, you have to be very motivated. You also have to be terribly organized and, uh, you know, keep all your accounts in order and all of that kind of thing. And that is not my forte. That is not my gift. And I think it's, no, it's such all a good over the place. I mean, I, I do think it, it requires a lot of intelligence in and the kind of intelligence that it requires, I don't have. Yeah, or you don't care to develop. Because if you did, you obviously could. As a scientist, you could choose to. But it's a whole different thing. Than yeah. writing. It really does. It, it takes a different kind of mind. You have to learn so many different details. And so yeah. it is a good point for going with a traditional publisher. But, you know, actually what occurred to me as you were talking about the, the theme and the plot that inspired it, you know, with uh, the recent... Um, publishing of, uh, I don't know, publishing is not the right word, the movie Wonder Woman, you know, and then even uh, Thor, there's a lot of female role model characters mm -hmm. that are coming out, strong women characters that are coming out. So it seems like, you know, and you might even, there may or may not be some adjusting of that, you know, like editing, like you may go want to go in now and see how you might write some of it differently. Perhaps you could actually even add to it um, so it seemed like a good timing, actually, to bring that one back yeah. into print. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens. I mean, for now, I think I'm so focused on my other work as well. Okay. Well, um, what is your other work? Yeah. What is your other work? Uh, a Time to Dance, which is my third novel, 
you know, that to me was a practice. And that was the time when, when it came out was the time that the other one went out of print. And so A Time to Dance is very much for me a spiritual novel. It's the first novel about a protagonist who is female and the, with the main plot being um, spiritual awakening as seen through the Hindu lens. So mm. it's the first novel that actually looks at a young girl who is Hindu and her spiritual awakening. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, um, it is not, however, a religious book. It is a spiritual book. And I, I make a difference because it's not a sermon. It's not proselytization. It's not, it's just seeing through a particular lens to some degree, but it, it reflects, I think, something far more universal, which is that the young woman in A Time to Dance um, learns, is a, is a dancer. She loves dancing. And then she loses her leg in an accident. And it's based on somebody that I knew. Shobha Sharma, who was a brilliant dancer, was, had a, she didn't have an accident. She had something else happen to her, was told she wouldn't be able to dance again and continues to dance. Mm. And, and you know, is a dance teacher, which is fantastic. And she's you know, brilliant, beautiful dancers. But I always wondered what it would be like to go through something like that. It happened when I was quite young. So I watched um, or I witnessed that this was happening in someone else's life. And even though I didn't know her very well, I knew that it was happening. And, and that made an impact on me. And so it came back in the form of this novel. And it's, you know, the young woman in the novel, Veda, her attitude to dance changes. So in the beginning, it's all about sort of self-aggrandizement and I am in the center, which sometimes we can allow our creativity to become like that. Mm -hmm. And at other times, um, you know, things change. I am very, very sorry, but I hear somebody knocking madly on my door. So I have to run out and check on that. Yeah, we'll pause. Uh, Okay. Okay. We were just talking about your book, A Time to Dance, and... Yeah, and so so I'm looking at the cover, and it looks like it's Bharatnatyam, classical Indian dancer, right? And uh, the beautiful costume, and I think it's just fascinating that... And we've heard... We actually recently interviewed a singer, uh, songwriter, music composer, who um, a lot of what she writes is from the stories in the history of her family, Mm -hmm. and so, like... That's part of and what she you... also had a, um, she was diagnosed with something that prevented her from doing her music for quite a while in the way that she wanted to. So, so it opened her, yeah. her um, creative arena. But so I think it's really fascinating that you're basically processing your life through your stories and mm-hmm. in a way and understanding the your life and the people in them. Um, and obviously, like you said earlier, developing your own compassion. So that's a wonderful connection there and Bharatanatyam is supposed to be you know it was meant to be a way to communicate with something else so it was supposed to be a way that you would get closer to God if you will and you know it fell out of that and so so many things happened historically as well and so my young protagonist begins in this place where it is all about her being the focus and the center of attraction which sometimes art can be you know you've become so tied into this is my book Right, and this is a piece of my ego. This is a piece of me out there in the world. As I just said with Island's End too, it felt like a personal rejection somehow. And it's, it's very hard to dissociate, but my protagonist doesn't, you know, doesn't become a Buddha. She doesn't, uh, you know, become an enlightened being, but, but she does 
start to move toward understanding that art is something that is about connecting to something larger and learns through that and is empowered by it to grow in a different way, to grow, to become a deeper human being. Yeah, well, and I think that the original, the originally the roots of Bharatanatyam, classical Indian dance, obviously all the stories, all the moves, all of that were created with a spiritual angle. And perhaps even before that, uh, connected to the Devadasi tradi tradition, um, where there were temple dancers and that they were performing the ceremonies and the pujas by virtue of being temple dancers, basically, in the Devadasi tradition. So it makes sense. And yet, of course, like anything else, it has become more commercialized, more like, you know, a thing that you do. I mean, same thing. I grew up in Hawaii and hula is a similar thing where now it's a tourist thing. But originally, it was a way of expressing the love of the land and spirituality. Um, yeah. So, no, yeah. It's like a fun thing you do in PE. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas yeah. it's like, no, there's some spiritual yeah. tradition here <laughs> some origin to story to it yeah. that's wonderful yeah. so okay so then tell us about your other book um let me see get back to that oh the bridge and again the bridge the home. bridge home the art is just wonderful yeah it's, you have an amazing so, artist yeah did you is that penguin that did all the art the covers yeah. for you i have an amazing editor so um and you know they have an amazing art director obviously at penguin and a lot yeah. of amazing artists as well so yeah i mean just looking the, the cover of the bridge home it just draws you in and yeah. makes you want to know the story of those four children running across that bridge. So tell us a little bit about the bridge home. All right. So the bridge home is um, inspired also by, by things that I grew up in Chennai in India for a long time. And there was this bridge. There's a, a bridge. It still is there, actually. It hasn't completely fallen into the river. But it was already abandoned, crumbling, very old when I was growing up. And you see people living in, you know, terrible conditions in India, which my, some of the readers have responded in ways, you know, that with, with utter surprise and shock, asking me if this does indeed happen uh, all the time, is this common? And I think, yes, much more than you know. And of course, as a child in India, you grow up seeing this all the time. And I've seen people, homeless children who are homeless in situations like that, and that certainly affected me very, very deeply. And, uh, you know, I was also uh, in a very unusual situation in that I grew up in a, in a family of a single mother. And in India at that time, that was pretty much unheard of. Yeah. And so that was something else that, you know, I, I, I could see we had, we faced economic hardship, but then again, she would do a lot of charity. So she would work in places where I met children who had much less than I did. Mm. And so I realized, you know, I, would, I realized that I wanted to tell those stories someday. Mm. And uh, I would, you know, scribble away in a little, in a little notebook. And she, one of my friends knew that I was doing that. And she said, Padma, would you write my story one day? So so here it is. I mean, in large measure, you know, I listen to many stories. It's not just her story. This particular story has taken from many of the people that I met, other people that I interviewed later, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an amalgam in a way, but it reflects that experience of, of dire poverty, but also the dignity that these children maintain through it all. The dignity, the love of life, the love of laughter, 
And although it is about something that is so tragic and so difficult and so horrifying and terrible, there's also joy in the book. Yeah. And I think that's very, very important to me because I think when you see that, when you, again, when you enter through a character and you see both their joys as well as their difficulties and their challenges, you respect that character. Mm -hmm. And then you don't pity them. You don't look down upon them. Yeah. You, know, you just start to look up to them, if anything. I'm very yes. rooted in gratitude. Um, and I'm sure your mom was recognizing that too in doing her charity work. And it's like, yes, we're in this situation, but look, we could have less, you know, we, we could not have a home at all. And I think it seems like a lot of your books are rooted in a sense of gratitude and a sense of personal strength, which I'm sure you grew up witnessing and experiencing yourself, both through watching your mom be a single mom in a country where that's not really a thing during that time but then also you yourself as an immigrant coming to this country and having to find lots of internal strength yeah, thank you yeah that's a good point so what are you working on now are you working on um the next novel like how does it work for you i uh, as you're writing the last novel that just came out um are you already like, so you, you just finished, um, bridge home. sorry, the bridge home. And as you're working on that, did you already have in mind the next or even before you started it? Or do you let it rest for a while? And then you think about what you might want to start next? I have so many ideas that I think I'll never be able to finish them in one lifetime. So I, I really hope the Indian idea that you might come back or the, or the Hindu idea that you might come back in another life. I hope it's true because I'd love to come back again and again and again and be a writer every time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, you know, so the long and the short of that is that I, I have a lot of ideas. I, until now, I've taken a long time to write them, to develop them and to have them on paper. So my, uh, often after one project is finished, I have several different ones that I work on and one of the projects that I'm doing right now is a novel that is loosely autobiographical and it is a, a novel that is potentially for adults and I'm doing that at a place called the Hansa Wissenschaftskolleg in Germany actually. So I have a fellowship to be a writer in residence there, oh. I'm there this summer and working oh. And, you know, I think I still will write for young uh, adults and, and uh, younger audiences than that. So middle grade and so on as well, for sure. So did you, for this fellowship, did, so you applied for it and got it. So how does one go about applying for writers fellowships like that? I think one of the things you have to do is to research every writer's fellowship. So, you know, there are several, if you Google them, for instance, but they have specific requirements sometimes. So I think anytime you apply whether it's it's applying to find an agent or it's applying for a fellowship or even just a writing residency you have to see if that particular um, niche is for you both to see whether you can fit into it and and also to see whether they would be likely to accept you so um this particular fellowship that i'm speaking of Haveka fellowship is hans of Wissenschaftskolleg writer in residence is a fiction science program. So it's meant for people who have a serious interest both in writing and in the sciences. Mm. 
And so, obviously, with me, I, you know, I'm an oceanographer and I write. And so many of the previous fellows of this program have also been, you know, uh, brilliant writers and brilliant scientists. So they have both going for them. And so I think if you were to apply with just an interest in doing both, but no, no um, experience of having done both to some degree, it might be harder. So, you know, how are you going to prove to them that you really do understand the science? And so it might not be for you, or it might not be for you at all if you have no interest in the sciences, which is fine. So I think sometimes people sort of blindly apply to everything. And I don't think that's a very smart way to use your time. Mm. So I think look on the internet to see what there is and then understand what the fellowship is about. Try to read, uh, you know, maybe people whose work they have funded before or they have supported in the past. So you understand if your work would be perhaps something that they would want to read. And, you know, of course, when it comes time, if you have that familiarity, you can always say what, you know, let's say it's to an agent, you can say, I see that you represent so-and-so. And I think, therefore, I think you might like my work because I love her work too, for instance. Mm -hmm. and what do you love about her work? Be specific about that. Mm -hmm. Or if you're applying to a fellowship like this, you say, hey, you know, I noticed that Padma Venkatraman was one of your previous fellows and I know she's an oceanographer and a writer and here I am, I am, I don't know who I am, let's say Devani and I am a mathematician and I also have an interest in writing and blah, blah. Then you can apply, see what I mean? Yeah. And then it tells them as well that you've done your homework. You're not somebody who's just applying. Have you done a fellowship writing program before? No. Um, I think this is my first writer in residence fellowship. I've, I mean, I've had other things before. I've got you know, scholarships to attend writing workshops, for instance, or other kinds of things. Um, you know, I've been writer in residence in like libraries and so on, but not this sort of an international fellowship. No, that'll be awesome. fun. So um, let's move to your daily creative habits, basically. So we're going to ask you just a few questions that will help our audience discover what works for you and might give them ideas of what could work for them. So do you have a daily creative structure? Uh, and if so, what is it? I would love to have a daily creative structure. <laughs> um, I think right now we have such a traditional split. I'm uh, a mom, I have lots of um, things that I do with my daughter and I want to do with my daughter. So it varies from day to day. For the most part now that she goes to school, I try very hard when she leaves the house to do a bit of writing before she comes back. And so those are sort of my precious hours. And I would say that if anybody else is in a similar situation, to protect those writing hours is immense. Yes. And, you know, this year with the, with the Bridge Home, I'm doing a lot of promotion. Uh, and, you know, thankfully, I'm, I'm very glad to have opportunities to speak about my work and to go elsewhere. But that means... If someone decides they want to meet me during the day, I say no, um, because I have to say no sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes what happens is when you work from home, it's so easy to think, oh, well, I'll just hop out and meet somebody for lunch. Yeah. Or yes, I can do that. I can have tea with them before somebody. And then you lose the time that you, you know, right. this work. And yeah. so I think the best I can say is, even if you don't have a regimen, 
the hours you know you will have regularly, protect them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And don't give them up. I mean, you have to, you know, be your own boss as well. And so be rather strict about that and say no. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah we absolutely agree. Um, so um, what advice for other artists? So you've already actually given the other advice for other artists um, relative to protecting their time and scheduling their creative time. Do you have any tips, one to three things that you think will produce the best results for writers aspiring to get published? Like in other words, to, well, actually there are several things. One is we met you through Lisa Tenner, who is a, a writing coach. So do you have now a writing coach or you just know her separately? I know her separately. Okay, okay. So you don't, you no, have, I don't have a writing coach. I mean, I think, I think Lisa is wonderful and she's a very dear friend of mine. And so uh, I have never experienced her as a writing coach, but I'm sure she's brilliant. Okay. Okay, good. So you haven't invested. She's a, wonder, she's a kind, wonderful person. So you haven't invested in, her, in a writing coach. So basically you do your own work and then you submit to your manuscript or outline first to Penguin in this case, to your agent, or how does that work for you? Yes. Now that I have an agent, if I finish something, then I would send it to him uh, to get feedback. Before that, I would certainly send it to several people who are trusted readers for me, get their feedback, do the best I can do to polish what I have, and then send it to my editor. And, you know, once your editor takes over, then it's mostly you and your editor working together to bring this vision of a book out into the world. I mean, my editor, Nancy Paulson, is you know, immensely well-respected in the field. And she's a brilliant editor. She has, you know, phenomenal um, authors. And so I think once that happens, then you trust her to help guide your book mm. and uh, to work together to toward the same goal, which both of you always have, which is that the book should be the best it can be. Mm -hmm. Do, have you, did you work with the same editor for all your books? I, I'm not as familiar with the traditional publishing model. So is it standard and typical that you work with like the same publisher for each book or does that the vary? Editor, the same, sorry, the same editor. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So usually once you get an editor, you work with that editor for every book. I mean, obviously now if you have something which is completely different, so let's say you have an editor who only some editors just love fiction and maybe an editor doesn't love fiction and you write a book that's nonfiction, then you might go to someone else or let's say there's a there's somebody a publishing house that that or an editor who loves to work with children's and young adult books but doesn't like books for adults then you would go to someone else again so there are there are times that you might do that and there are other authors that i know uh, one of my favorite authors Mar margarita engel is a brilliant author for young adults and for middle grade and she also writes picture books and she has several different editors and so she works with many different publishing houses so some people do that and and i think another editor friend of mine uh, sorry an author friend of mine stacy lee also has more than one editor that she works with more than one publishing house so that happens um, as well so when it comes it hasn't happened to me when it comes to agents, so you have your agent um, now representing you for anything else that you write, I presume. Uh, what advice can you give to writers who are looking for an agent? Be very careful because there are real agents like mine, but there are also a lot of people now posing as agents. It's very easy to do in this day and age to have a website which costs you nothing and you put up in a few minutes or costs you very little 
and you can pretend to be an agent, right? So one of the things that I would look for is I think there's a, the uh, AAAR, uh, the American Association of Author Representatives. Most of the time, if an, if an agent is paying to be a member of that association, that means they subscribe to a code of, of ethics that they can't break. Um, there are other things as well you might want to look for. Make sure that the agent never charges you money. The agent should never ask you to pay for anything. They only make money off your sale. They make a percentage off your sale. Ah. So my agent, for instance, makes 15% off of everything that he sells for me. And um, uh, that is how an ethical agent works. Hmm. So um, an agent is not somebody who says, hey, give me some money and then let me see if I can sell this book for you or flatters you. My agent is brilliant because he looks at my books and tells me what doesn't work. He yeah. is not someone who says, I love your work, Padma, you're brilliant. All the, you know, this is fantastic. This is phenomenal. This is going to be the next, I don't know what, New York Times bestseller all the way. No. Um, that's, the, the, that's the kind of thing you might want your friends and family to say to you, but that's not what you want from somebody in the industry like that. So I think that's very important that when young authors want to be published, it's, it's so wonderful to hear this kind of thing. And if someone is flattering you, you might not see it as flattery. And it's so easy to fall into that trap, um, but don't. Because there are several people out there, unfortunately, who are ready to scam, ready to take money and pretend they're doing something and end up doing nothing. Right, it's such a good point. And an agent who is basically working on straight commission, then it, they have your best interest in mind because it yeah. also serves them. Yes. Okay, so and so how like agents should only work on commission. Okay, so is your agent someone whose name you would put out there and recommend people contact? How would they go about being approved by an agent, a, a reputable agent? So my agent is Rob Weisbach, um, which is Rob Weisbach Creative Management. And if you would go to his website, there will be a contact um, link, and any reputable agent should have that. So you'd have, I mean, I certainly, once you become an, uh, an agent's client, you have other ways of contacting them. But the first time you would contact somebody like that would be sort of over the transom, which is that you would go to their website, you would study who they, who they represent, mm -hmm. you would look at what their interests are, maybe they sometimes would say what they're looking for right now, perhaps, or whatever. And then you would apply to them, you would send a query letter to them via their website and you should never never send an attachment until they ask for it because if, if they get an attachment from someone it will almost with a guarantee go into the trash because they don't know what it is it might have a virus it might be something right. so you would write to them essentially asking you know say you perhaps that you're looking for representation tell them why you are interested in them tell them what your book is about briefly you know never boast but if you have credentials, in my case, you know, I had published in whatever, then those are a viable credentials. So, you, you know, you mention those and then you, you're polite and you sum up and you see if they will reach out and contact you. So it gets back to um, like applying to residency programs, do your research and exactly. see what else the agent has done and who else they've represented and what they're looking for and then submit and yeah. 
submit a query, you know, tell them what your work is about, tell them why you, you're interested in them, and then wait to see if they reply. And don't hide under a rock from the world if you get a rejection. Because <laughs> somebody will say yes. And eventually. don't give up, right? Yeah. And don't give up. Yeah. So um, do you have, this is uh, second to last question, uh, do you, uh, whether you have any aspirations and dreams that you'd care to share and anchor by stating them out loud here? Um, absolutely. I hope my books will cause social change. I think over and above everything else, I would love for my books to, to, to literally to make the world a better place in whatever small way by creating more compassion, by, um, by getting people to understand both the cruelties that, that we sort of meet out to one another, as well as the kindnesses and, and really change. There's so much in this world that I've experienced that that so many other people experience. I mean, I, you know, I was in Virginia for a very long time where there was a lot of racism um, and there still is overt and insidious racism in this country in all over the world. There are issues of caste in India that are so unresolved. There are gender biases still rampant in our world after thousands of years of existence as human beings, yeah. you know, and, and however much um, I can do to, to make just a little, add a little more compassion to this world. Definitely. Beautiful. Very lofty and uh, worthy aspirations. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts to share uh, with the audience of creators before we say goodbye? I will. And I, and I think the, you know, we're talking about advice for writers. The one thing that I would like to say is this, along with, there's the need, sometimes there's this desire to be recognized by the world. And I do think that you can't let that drive you because that's the sort of thing that, that might get you a bad agent. You know what I mean? So on the one hand, you have to be a bit like Veda in, my, in, in A Time to Dance. You have to give everything you can to your art, but after that, you have to let go. It is a bit like the you know, ships that, that sail that you don't have control over. So it's a little paper boat. You do the best you can, and then you set, say, you let it go, and then you, you know you can't control it anymore. And never allow that material success or, or lack thereof to dictate uh, who you are or to affect you too, too much. Yes. So That's yes, we all are happy sometimes. Yes, we all are sad sometimes, but, yes. but try not to be too battered by those storms. That makes, that's really excellent advice. Very worthwhile, all of us considering because mm -hmm. we all have storms, no matter what it is. And, you know, we can't let that stop us from pursuing the work that matters to us. Even oceans have storms. Even oceans, especially. <laughs> and it's an ocean. Yeah, especially. So uh, to end with your quote also, again, stories are the ships in which we sail the oceans of imagination by, by Padma. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll link to your books uh, and your website as well. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk to both of you. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us for the I Create Daily podcast. Please let us know what creatives you would like us to interview and what topics you would be interested in hearing more about. 
And if you enjoyed this show, please leave a review on iTunes. We value your feedback. We read all the reviews and it just helps us get the word out on the iCreate Daily podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much.